This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Ben Brophy. And unfortunately, um, Thabiti is actually not with us for the recording of this one. He'll be back for our next episode. Uh, so for this one, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. And um, we thought we would, Ben and I would interview each other um, about sort of how we ended up where we did on the political spectrum. Um, how did we arrive at the views we have? Those of you who've been listening will know that, you know, we sort of, I, I tend to lean left, Ben tends to lean right, whatever those things mean. And we'll talk about that too. Um, but one thing we'll just try to ask each other is kind of, how did you get there? Um, and also how does that interact with kind of other um, sort of factors around you? How does it interact with your being a Christian? So that's the plan today. And I think at the, at the end, we'll, we'll do a little bit of reflecting on, I think for a lot of our listeners, you all are telling us a lot about thinking about how you form your own views. And so hopefully we'll, have some reflections and some sort of wisdom or other uh, about that toward the end. Um, so with that, uh, I, I am going to go first. So that means Ben's <laughs> going to ask me a couple of questions. So. Yeah. So this yeah. is usually, usually Nick's driving the conversation. So this gets to be a little bit more fun for me in the sense that I get to put Nick on the hot seat a little bit, which is good. But Nick, I guess the first question I have for you is, you know, when did you first become political at all right like what do you remember do you have a memory of when you first started thinking about politics and and what yeah what was it all right so i have like a story i remember before i became political whatever that means <laughs> uh and then i and then that story sort of that that was a seed that kind of grew later so um i grew up in california um i was born in the city of los angeles but spent most of my like growing up years in the suburbs outside and so when I was about five, um, my family moved from Los Angeles out to the suburbs. And I asked my parents, why are we moving? And they said, we're moving um, so that you can go to a better school. And um, so, I mean, I didn't think much of it then, but for some reason I've always, I always remembered that. And I, you know, I got my start doing public policy and education reform. And I think part of it came out of that was just this question I would ask myself of, why is it that my parents had to move so that I could go to better school? And what about people who didn't have the means to move so their kid could go to a better school? And so those were sort of questions that dogged me and that really followed me into kind of young adulthood. I'll be honest, Ben, like um, my parents are both sort of, well, they were at the time at least, um, you know, sort of kind of standard issue, center-right conservatives. Um, I remember them sort of telling me, uh, you know, like that we should vote for, you know, that I should, that, that they were voting for Dukakis in 1988, uh, and then for, uh, uh, well, I'm sorry, that they were voting for Bush in 1988, and that Dukakis was bad. That was, that was sort of what I was taught. Uh, and then again, obviously for, for Bush again in 92, though that one went the other way. Um, so I didn't really start thinking differently from them until I was like in high school. Um, and arguably, you could, you could argue the beginning of that was just kind of a rebellion against one's parents. Well, they think this, so I'm going to think that. Um, but I guess it was the return of that question. It was the return of that question of 
why do some people have more than others and am I okay with that? And how did that come to be? And is that fair and is that just? And so that probably, that started me on the road to sort of thinking that I might wanna have something to do with that. Um, and getting my start as a student activist and thinking about school reform, um, it was a natural fit to think, well, wait a minute, like really, like what, what, what's going on here? Why is it we have 15,000 school districts in America and each of them is very, very, very different, differently run, um, and basically afford our children very, very different opportunities uh, growing up. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my path to progressivism. That's good. Um, that's helpful. It's a good, good anecdote. I feel like I too, like, well, when we get to me, like, I too have these very vivid memories that like kind of started my quote-unquote political brain uh, working so that's fascinating that you did too so okay you gave us a little bit of the bio there you get to high school and you're thinking about these ideas more was there a moment in time where you said you know what I think I think I'm a progressive um, mm. and when and you know coming from a relatively conservative background that's a that's a break from what your parents believed was there a particular moment that precipitated that or was it a gradual process that you just found yourself you know, aligning with one side more than the other. Walk me through that. Mm. I should note that back then we did not use the word progressive. Um, that, that really didn't come into vogue until the 2000s or so. Uh, but of course, liberal was a dirty word. It's less of one now. Um, and so I, I think I just sort of said I was a Democrat because like that was the only label that seemed okay, that was allowed at the time. Um, and so yeah, it would it would have been kind of mid to late high school. I started doing like student leadership, student activism stuff. Most of the kids I ran with, you know, in my home in California were also Democrats. Um, and I remember watching the 2000 election. That was the first one I really paid attention to. Um, and I remember being with others kind of who were involved in as sort of student activists and seeing the night go different directions that, that very night, because obviously it was a, an election that was contested and was drawn out. Um, and that was the first time I, I think that that must have been it. And that was when I was like, Oh yeah, I guess I'm rooting for this side to win. You know, like, was sort of what I thought. Um, and so I think that, that probably would have been it. That was when I um, said in terms of thinkers who got me that by, by the year 2000 at the age of 18, no, 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 no particular thinkers. Um, it was more just kind of the, the sort of stuff I was involved in, the water I swam in, that sort of thing. That's fascinating. Okay, so that gets us, you know, from high school to college, and so you're, you're kind of swimming in that stuff, but, um, you know, knowing you, I know that your, your viewpoints have, have matured a little bit, and you've thought about this stuff a little bit more deeply, so, so talk, talk to me about, you know, thinkers in particular that have been impactful to you, um, and have kind of reaffirmed you know, your, your instinct to, to lean left. And Ooh, by, no means, <laughs> by no means are you oh, left on everything. Our listeners are going to love this because, so then the college years happen, right? Yeah. Um, they radicalized you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, so like many kids in college, I like took some courses that were about kind of like reading, you know, the so-called great books. Mm. Um, and I remember... I remember a few that I think were particularly important, right? So like they had us read, so, um, I, I, well, and I, and I think so, if you think about sort of philosophers, John Rawls probably stands out for pretty obvious reasons, right? You're kind of, he's not your leftiest philosopher, but 
the idea of kind of the veil of ignorance, the idea of saying, if you didn't know what sort of zip code or family or background you would be born into, how would you want to organize the world to be just? Um, I think rang true to me. It goes back to that whole idea of like, I was born to parents who could afford to move me, you know, out of the city and into the suburbs to send me to a good school. Like, don't I want everyone to be able to do that? And don't I want a world in which that's not necessary, essentially, in some way, shape or form? So, so John Rawls, I think that was compelling to me. I remember, I remember reading, um, you know, about Robert Nozick, who's sort of your kind of, uh, sort of uh, uh, your, your, your answer to, uh, to Rawls or vice versa. And I remember just thinking of the sort of assumptions underlying what he said were like kind of laughably like false, right? He said, as long as the starting conditions are the same and as long as there's equality of opportunity and as long as there was a third one, but the first two are like never satisfied in real life. <laughs> and so I thought that like, it basically it was as long as those things are true, then we should just let people be free <laughs> as it were. And that is a just society. But again, the starting conditions are never the same and people never have equality of opportunity, at least not in the world we live in today. So that was one set of thinkers. But the set of thinkers my, the, our listeners will really love is like Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were actually also influential for me. Um, not because I'm a Marxist. You've really, you've really stepped in it now. I mean, well, goodness yeah, because, gracious. So, so no, no, no. And, and, and we, 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 you know, we're, we're going to but not because I'm a Marxist, not yeah. because I'm a communist, not because <laughs> I want a communist government. I actually think Marx falls into that category of thinkers who very clearly and accurately diagnose the problem and whose solution just isn't very good. Yeah, yeah exactly right. right? Like, yeah. So, so, so Marx's critique of the excesses of capitalism, I mean, read it against the, the backdrop of sort of the modern kind of excesses and inequalities that you see, sort of modern day robber barons who rigged the system in their favor. Um, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I think I agree with what this guy is saying, right? <laughs> like, um, this idea that people can become exploited and their labor abused and taken for, and, and, and essentially sort of separated from them. Um, I mean, I think we see that everywhere, right? There's, there's versions of it, you think about like old, older and also modern day slavery, but you also think in terms of like, you know, like sort of more sort of legal forms like sharecropping back in the day. And today, really, really, really low wage labor where workers have no power and where jobs are pretty terrible and employers kind of have all the power, right? Like, I'm not saying communism is the answer to that, but I am gonna, I am with Marx and saying all of that kind of sticks. Um, so that's, so, so, so that was the other sort of influential thinker for me, I think. Mm, that's good. Um, it's talking to me a little bit. Okay. That helps me understand like your kind of journey through, um, you know, liberal progressive, whatever, whatever word you want to use for it. Um, are there issues or areas in which your positions have changed and, and why, if so, why? And if yeah, not, yeah, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything I'm describing to you, right, is pre-becoming a Christian. So I, be, I become a Christian at the age of 23 mm. um, in my first year of graduate school. Um, and, um, oh, by the way, yeah, Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, your classic economics thinkers would also be in that. Once I'm in college, I mean, most of what I study is economics. And so your, you know, Adam Smith is kind of, 
sort of known for like, oh, it's the invisible hand in the free market. But if you actually read Adam Smith, what you see is the free market does some wonderful things and here are all the places where it won't work, <laughs> mm. right? And he was clear about that and many respected economic thinkers since then have been clear about that as well. Anyway, so I'm studying economics. I'm a grad student in economics um, at this point and I'm doing like the economics of school finance. Um, and then I become a Christian and there are lots of things that change about me as a result of that, but I start to have to sort of question my own. I think, I think an honest accounting means you start giving up your political beliefs to um, what the Bible says. But what's interesting here is my default position was really different from the default position of most Christians. It was like, oh, I'm a lefty, I'm a secular progressive. That's what I think. And so it was almost like the process of becoming a believer caused me to then say, okay, which of these things does the Bible, which of my beliefs does the Bible absolutely require me to change? Hmm. And it turned out that of all the things I believe, there were only like two or three things, right? Like yeah. that was the thing, right? Like, so, and, um, and, and with abortion, that was a bit of a journey. It was probably the biggest and most important and longest journey, but it, it, it involved, and I think we've talked about this on prior episodes, just people kind of like pushing me, challenging me, asking me. And there are multiple stages there, right? One of which is saying like, well, do you believe abortion is murder? And then secondly, what do you, what do you believe about the public policy implications of those, which, which aren't automatically therefore ban abortion and or do this or that, right? They could be other things, right? But like those evolutions all happened um, for me bit by bit. Um, and I think it was important, like, I guess the, the other thing I'd say is, you know, like most, like most Christians, I rejected postmodernism and cultural relativism, relativism, you, you, you kind of have to, right? Um, and so Marx, for example, is a cultural relativist, right? Like Marx, you know, one of the other things he's famous for having said is, there's nothing to the world but what you see in front of you, the material in front of you, the atoms and the dust and the whatever, right? Um, and of course that I had to reject doesn't mean his critique of capitalism is wrong. Right. But, um, of course the fundamental underlying worldview is wrong. And so, um, I think I had to say, okay, well, if I believe that again, though, it was sort of like, I didn't become a culture warrior. I started asking what does holding a fixed absolute worldview require me to change about this belief set? Mm. Right. And it, there were some significant things, right? Like just around like this idea of like, actually, I think the thing I would tell you is my reasons for some of the progressive policies I support changed, right? So if I were to tell you, for example, that like, I want to be an anti-racist and I believe in like working towards racial equity, if my reasoning before was some vague sense of secular humanism and it seems like the right thing to do, my reason now is rooted in Genesis 1, right? It's rooted in the fact that we're all made in the image of God. Um, I remember hearing a story of a person I worked with in the, in the educational reform movement who was not a believer. And she said to me, she had done all sorts of advocacy work all over the country. And the moment that stuck with her the most was a moment when she went to one of the deep South states, I think it was Alabama. And she went to testify before an education committee that was sort of run by very conservative Republicans. And she's a kind of lefty liberal person. And she says, the thing that surprised me was the chairman opened the meeting by saying, I've invited this person here because we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but I believe in the image of God in each person. 
and she is a fearless, tireless advocate for racial equality, and we're on the same side. So they had come to the same position via very different means. I think that's another part of my evolution is the underpinnings of some of the things I believe in have changed to being biblical underpinnings as opposed to being sort of secular or kind of reasoned out in my own head, as it were. Yeah. So when you became a Christian and you started to think through these things, you were willing to let go of whatever whatever position you previously held if scripture clearly indicated that you had to give it up. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the big struggle, right? I, I'm the pastor in the UK who was most instrumental in my conversion. Um, he's a great guy. He spent lots of time with me dealing with all these things, lots of different questions I had as I was a young believer. And um, he, at some point said to me, he said, Nick, you're a clever fellow. You're going to a fancy you know, impressive graduate school here in the UK. Um, You, he said, are going to need to learn to submit your mind to the authority of scripture. And I'll never forget that because I think up until that point, I'd been like the smart kid in class or whatever. And my mind was sort of one of the idols I worshiped or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? One of the things that made me stand out. And so this idea that I needed to submit my mind and whatever I'd reasoned out, which looking back wasn't terribly impressive actually, but like looking back and knowing that I had to submit that to the authority of scripture, like that, um, yeah, that was a real important turning point. And I think it was, it led to a good flexibility in the years that followed when I traveled with people from lots of backgrounds in the churches I was in, learned from them, listened, um, and gradually kind of changed and shaped my beliefs. And I can tell you coming out on the other side of that, that it's actually a pretty unusual thing, even among believers, you know, like just because like for people to change what they believe politically. And yet I think it's really, really vital that people Mm -hmm. continuously interrogate um, their political beliefs. Um, Even in the sense of does this set of policy preferences, does it actually deliver on what scripture demands? Because over time you can learn that the things you thought delivered on what scripture demands don't. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and Ben, you said a few episodes ago, you're like, I mean, I don't think you may or may not still believe this. Ah, the Supreme Court, all the all the campaign for the Supreme Court was a sham, and we didn't, need, it didn't help, and we shouldn't have done it, and we shouldn't, have, we should have spent our energy elsewhere. But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even to say, actually, I gotta change, change something about what I believe about strategy, something what I believe about beliefs or policy or whatever. I do think it's important that we all be. I mean, there's a there's a famous quote from Nelson Mandela. Um, when they asked him, you know, they asked him a number of things, like, why did you, like, you know, why, why did you change some of the things you did, right? Like, as you got older, as you got further into your career, and he said, well, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Um, and so I, I would hope that would be kind of what every yeah, Christian yeah. does. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, that's the end of my questions for you. So why don't we take a short break, and then Nick can ask me questions about why I'm a crazy writer. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. 
Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I've done my time. Now it's Ben's turn on the hot seat. Ben, I will ask you the same first question, which is when did you first find yourself Mm. sort of being aware of politics and saying, I have a certain politics and it leans in this direction. Yeah. So my first political memory is, is um, yeah, it must've been 88. Uh, It's when Ronald Reagan is stepping down. It's it's as he's leaving and H.W. Bush is coming in. So I assume that's the inauguration, 88, 89, something like that. And I remember asking my dad, you know, what's happening here? Like, is, is Reagan, like, is he retiring? Is he like dying? What's, what is happening? And he's like, well, you know, he served his two terms and he's on his way out. And now his vice president has going to be president. I just, I just remember being really fascinated by um, the pageantry and the, the trans, like the peaceful transition of power and his willingness to go and being like, well, if I was in charge, like, why would I? Anyway, so those were kind of my first thoughts about like the peaceful transition of power. And so that's my first political memory. Um, I mean, I can remember reading, there was this, there was this, newspaper that got delivered i think it must have been bi-weekly or monthly it was called like the conservative chronicle pat pat buchanan i think was in there like a whole bunch of people and oh, i yeah. was eating it up like i just read every <laughs> every issue and i was like wow this is great i remember this is like when newt gingrich was in his ascendancy and like i can i can vividly remember a cartoon of like hey newt do you want to be president he's wearing like a king's robe and he's like no i'm good as speaker of the house and i just like (laughs) just like ate it all up um and so you know i would say like because of that reading that stuff the 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 family i was in you know that definitely became I didn't question too much like conservative beliefs. Um, they just kind of became like part and parcel of my thinking. Um, I was also, I was raised in a Christian home. Um, ironically, you know, you would expect that the linkage between evangelical Christianity and politics was there, but I never felt that like from the way my parents taught me, they were definitely, they were actually separate fields altogether. Um, and they only really, crossed over on like the issue of abortion and so they were kind of two separate lines of thought for me and I didn't I didn't quite I didn't really think about how those two things interacted at all um and so yeah all the way up through high school I mean I was definitely I'm, I grew up in New Jersey which is a pretty a pretty progressive state even back then and so I remember like challenging high school teachers and being like nah no way like this, that, and the other thing. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. Those... You're saying, by the way, that you, you came at this mostly on your own. Your parents weren't terribly were... opinionated one way or the other? Or... They were political. Like, they were, they were conservative and still are, okay. for sure. I don't I – think, I think a way to put it is for, like, my, my dad in particular, politics was like sports. You know, like, we're, we're going to follow it. We're kind of like – you know, we're going to have a fun debate over it. Kind of like who's the greatest hitter of all time. Like what's, who's, who's the smartest politician. Like kind of, kind of that approach. Um, It was never 
there, there was never any vitriol in it. But at the same time, like, we didn't have a ton of progressives in our, like, our social circle. So I don't know who would have challenged those positions um, if, if there were any. Um, so that, that was kind of my – I was kind of born and bred in it. The other thing that really affected me is my, my parents ran a small business together. And so I did, I did see a lot of, like, you know – frivolous lawsuits, saw a lot of how difficult it was to do things like permitting, saw like, you know, some of the inefficiencies in local, very local government. Um, and I was hyper aware of that, uh, you know, sure. where it, makes, it makes a difference between whether you're going to be in the red or the black. And, um, and I just remember seeing how clearly like local regulations can really impact small business. And so that was always in my mind too. I just always had a, a chip on my shoulder for like the, the entrepreneur because that's, you know, that's who my dad was. That's who my mom was. Um, and so some of that is driven by personal experience. Um, so yeah, that's, that's probably my first political memory um, and, and kind of what shaped me. Yeah. So when did you say to yourself, like you asked me, uh, I'm a, I'm a conservative or I'm a Republican or both yeah. or either. Yeah. Yeah. So my, we'll get to this. My story is definitely more of a journey. So I, in high school, I would have said I'm a Republican and I'm a conservative. And those two things are synonymous. Um, sure. I, I would have definitely contended that at the time. Um, and this probably. Ironically back in like the nineties, they were not right. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, within the party, there were certainly conservatives. Sure. Were they all uh, that that's a, no. Um, so when I got to college, um, similar experience, uh, read the great books like Plato and Aristotle were really hugely impactful for me. Um, you know, read, read some Rawls, read some Hannah Arendt. Um, I double, ma I double majored in political science and history. And so the, the 20th century history had a strong influence on my mind. Um, and so this is where like, you know, you read like Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom, stuff like this, sure. and you're like, okay, there, there is an encroaching, there can be an encroaching totalitarianism of government that is, can lead to some really bad stuff. And so in college, I was certainly moving to the left on, um, I guess you would say like social issues, but I still had this innate distrust of massive amounts of power being centered in uh, central governments. Right. And that, that goes all the way back to the small business thing, looking yeah. at history in the 20th century, obviously it went wrong in a couple of ways there with horrible consequences for the U S but like you, Wait, wait, what, were, what, are the, what are the horrible, what are the horrible things? Uh, well, Europe? you know, the Soviet Union, uh, slaughter. Okay, you're, so you're thinking about other countries. You're thinking yes. about fascist countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, I didn't know if you were talking about the New Deal, because you might have been, right? Like, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, you know, so on, but I was also drifting left, at the same time, like, of this distrust of central government, I'm starting to drift leftward, like, I'm thinking about, like, equality and wait a minute like I was born into this family with this economic you know privilege if you want to use that word 
mm. it doesn't seem fair that other people were born into others. So I'm, I'm definitely starting to have some of that churn. Um, and then I worked construction for a year and then I went to grad school here in DC and that's like 2006 to 2008. So at the time, like this is, this is the most quote unquote liberal I ever got. Um, I, you know, I worked, I interned for a, a democratic member of Congress. We were all liberals as Obama yeah. took office, weren't yeah, we? Right, yeah. Uh, so I, Wait, I'm sorry, uh, you interned for a Democrat? What? I did, yeah. Uh, Rush Holt. Okay. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, rock, literally a rocket scientist. Um, one Jeopardy three times. Smart guy. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he's retired now. Um, and um, I was never, I was always a, I was always a moderate Democrat because even even um, the the one like abortion was all I was always pro life. I could never let that one go. Um, it just seems so clear to me, not just from a Christian perspective, from but from a, a human perspective. And so that always kind of kept me a little more right than my colleagues, obviously. Um, but yeah, in grad school and being on the Hill, I was definitely, I was a registered Democrat for a short time. Like there, there was certainly, I was, I would have said that I was socially conservative and economically liberal, which is not a combination you find very often. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Obama was real excited. He, in 08, he had a, he had a talking point and I'll never forget it. He said in some stump speech, you know, we may never agree on Roe v. Wade, but we can all agree there should be fewer abortions. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this, like this guy gets it. Um, and so I was like in, I was in. And then, you know, he's elected to office and we're all excited and, and not for nothing, but, you know, seeing an African-American in, in the Oval Office is like, that's moving. Like it's a powerful thing. But, you know, a couple months into his, into his term, you know, he starts, you know, allowing federal funding for abortions and just, you know, certain things. And I was like, that was like my moment of like disillusionment of like, Oh my goodness. He's like immediately like doing this stuff. Uh, and so that's what I was, cause I was definitely like maybe perhaps naively, but I was definitely like all in. And then he started to make those policy choices. And I was like, Oh man, I feel, I feel so let down. And not, you know, at the same time, that's I in my personal life I'd been rebelling against the Lord for a decade and you know 0809 is where I start the Lord starts drawing me back to him I'm you know I'm back at church I'm diving into the scriptures my pro like in my rank of rank order of issues you know abortion was I was always pro-life but it waned it waxed and waned and yeah sure but as I'm diving back into the scriptures and thinking about the Imago Day, it starts to rise to a level of higher importance. And so that started pulling me back um, away from the Democratic Party. Uh, I still I still contend if there was a strong pro-life wing of the Democratic Party, there there might be conversations mm-hmm. we could have there. Yeah. Um, and so I started to, yeah, I started to move back rightward. Um, and have been kind of edging right on most issues ever since. Um, the exceptions are uh, racial justice, because that's, you know, the more I understand what scripture has to say, say about, you know, injustice and the oppressed and, you know, 
we need to defend the rights of the marginalized. Like that seems really clear to me. And so criminal justice reform, racial justice, those are things where, you know, I've stayed quote unquote left, perhaps even further left than, than many Democrats in some ways. Um, I've stayed relatively middle of the road, center left probably on immigration. Um, though there's, that's the funny thing, like the libertarian wing of the Republican party would be like right there as well. Um, so there's a few, there's a few issues where I'm still, you know, a lefty. Um, but for the most part, when it comes to, you know, philosophically, do we want to concentrate power in central government? Still makes me uncomfortable. Economically, you know, we've talked about this, but, you know, being $28 trillion in debt or whatever it is now, like, that makes me nervous. Um, some point, the bond markets, you know, that come that bill comes due. Um, and so I, my gut instinct is to default right typically um there there are certainly exceptions to that but that's that's kind of the trajectory of my political career started far right move center left and then have been attacking back rightward as uh as i've reached my 30s yeah Yep. Um, you asked me, I want you to complete the picture, thinkers that have sort of influenced you through this. You talked about your conservative magazines. You talked about Hayek. Yeah. Other thinkers that have been important for you? Yeah. Um, I'll mention a few. Eric Vogelin, is, uh, he was a philosopher uh, at LSU. Um, he wrote a couple of books. He came out of Nazi Germany and then came to the U.S. to teach, um, fleeing the Nazi regime there. And he... He wrote a, a couple of books. I'm not going to remember the names. I want to say it's like Gnosticism and the Political Religions and then like Modernity Without Restraint. Uh, I think those are close. Um, and he's, he's obviously influenced by his experience. I mean, we, it is interesting how much we're, we're shaped by our experiences, which begs the question of how much, how much control <laughs> do we have over our political views. But that's, a, that's for another day. Um, but he's like... His coming out of Nazi Germany, he kind of said, you know, there, there is this rising belief that this secret knowledge that we can implement through massive bureaucratic means can bring on the perfect society. And what it does instead is unleash horror. Um, and then modernity without restraint is kind of a, a similar idea of like, you know, we are going to essentially bureaucrat technocrat our way to you know human flourishing um but for him he found the prospect terrifying because it becomes totalitarian not in necessarily nazi germany but in its demand of everyone must believe act this way buy into this larger structure um and so like those for me being like, I don't really love big government, like that stuff really, really resonated. Um, so he's one, Hannah Arendt, uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism, um, that was good. Um, her description of uh, what's his name, Eichmann and how like, yeah, the banality of evil, like this, this, this little clerk guy is being, is, is finding more efficient ways to kill Jewish people. And he's like, this is her point is yeah. evil is not the boogeyman. It's your, it's you, it's me. It's, it's your yeah. next door neighbors. Um, yeah. And I thought that was, 
that was really powerful. So those, those were kind of the, the thinkers that probably shaped me. Um, and then, I, you know, again, I, I just, yeah, Plato and Aristotle were just mass, like massively huge. Um, that kind okay. of, uh, I mean, that was my introduction to like political philosophy as a whole. At, some, at sure. one point, I wanted to get my PhD in political philosophy. So I had a professor in undergrad who just kind of like blew my mind with that stuff. Um, and so, you know, Plato's ideas of the perfect forms and like thinking about, okay, there are ideals here. Like that all kind of got really heady for me and interested. And then Aristotle's ethics trying to apply, you know, what does this look like in real life? Like that, all that stuff was really fascinating to me. Um, but when I, what I found really refreshing is when my faith got more serious is how much more completely scripture deals with both the, like the ideal in, the, in God and the practical outworkings of this stuff in books like Proverbs that are just better than Aristotle's ethics. And so that as I've gotten older, I've gotten away from that stuff because it's like scripture has provided me with something that I find way more comprehensive um, mm -hmm. and more satisfying. But, but I do think that's a callback to something from our last episode in which we talked about the importance of common grace and appreciating the contributions that thinkers who are not believers can make, what? even if their thinking is incomplete because it doesn't have this worldview underpinning it, right? Yeah. Like you can appreciate Hayek yeah. uh, and the contribution he made and the warning he gave, right? Like, um, just like there I say, I can appreciate Marx and his critique sure. of capitalism, right? The yeah. atheist Marx, but, um, but yes, I, I do think that's okay. So Ben, I'm going to ask you a, probably a little bit of a pointed question. So you should feel the right to ask me one in return. Um, you, you, uh, several of your thinkers are kind of warnings against totalitarianism. And if I throw in another person in that school who leans right, it will be Ayn Rand, who was shaped by her sort of time in the Soviet Union, you can tell, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like in terms of like where she comes from. Um, has the current era, um, like literally the current administration, caused you to question your beliefs about which ideology is more susceptible to the totalitarian impulse oh yeah so i mean i don't think i was ever i don't i i there may have been a time i hope i was never fool enough foolish enough to think that neither the left nor the right could fall into this i sure. i like i thought that way before the current administration um i mean we've talked about this too i, I mean going back to to George W. Bush, um, you know, when we started doing, when the president started doing things by executive order, like mm. that is like, you know, the, that is the norm for presidents now for, you know, W, Obama, and now Trump. Yeah. It's yeah. like, that is, that is, that is inching in that direction. I mean, we're not, we're not there. There's no stormtroopers kicking down my door. I don't want to be dramatic. Um, but you are seeing an executive that is massively empowered um, and a Congress that is pretty weak. Before we you know it, we'll vote to give the chancellor emergency powers and, you know, know the rest I'm, is history. I'm wearing my Star Wars shirt. <laughs> yeah. um, great. Okay. Well, that I think is a good stopping point for, uh, for this segment. Let's take a break and then we'll do a little bit of reflection just jointly about how Christians shape their political views. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, finding a faith strong enough to hold us. 
written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So we've begun to explore this question a little bit, but I do, I do think, and I really appreciate it. We, we, you know, we got some listener feedback about kind of questions they want us to take on, and we're going to hopefully do those on the next episode. And a lot of them come down to this idea of like, how, how do I form my own views essentially? Right. And what, what's a Christian to do, right. And how are they to think about that? So I guess, Ben, I think the question for both of us is any advice for people who are asking themselves, that that sort of question like what should i do if i'm trying to form a kind of political philosophy that is compatible with you know my beliefs as a believer um but which also reflects kind of things that i see or know or feel or believe um about the way the world works yeah i mean i'll i'll take a shot i mean you know the 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 old answers are always are still good answers i mean being being the word being the scriptures um i think yeah so for me personally um thinking about the imago day and what it has what it means for for racial justice thinking about just how much the bible links justice with making sure the poor and oppressed and marginalized get the rights due to them and also that those who do evil get the punishment that they're supposed to receive um thinking about those things there's not a there's not a straight line between that and specific policy but there certainly is a flavor and emphasis um a particular bias if you will towards mentioning these things and i think that that should in- inform how we how we think Th- this applies to all sorts of stuff I mean, the imago day certainly applies to a- abortion as well i think the other thing i would strongly recommend and this is i think i've learned this as i've gotten older is just being willing to you said you mentioned Mandela, like, oh, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? I would, I want to tweak that to when my when my understanding of scripture is more full. I'm going to align with scripture than than mm. anything else. And so, like for both of us, politics is at least some part of how we formed our identities growing up through high school and college and everything else, right? Like this is something we spend a lot of time thinking about and identity is a funny thing. Like it it can be really hard to let go of. Um, And I think what I would just encourage Christians to do is to be willing to drop your political identity uh, in submission to your Christian identity, right? Like there's just who you are as a Christian is, is far more important Mm. um than your party affiliation or what policy positions you hold um ultimately all of these policy positions are you know imperfect um and perfect justice and righteousness and peace isn't coming until Christ returns and so yeah i, I think it is a real challenge for for many in myself included to think as a christian first and as somebody who's conservative second um and I think we need to just order those things rightly. Like I am a Christian and 
I believe in God's word, that's at the top. Like all these other identity markers, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, those have to be subordinated to who you are in Christ. And if they get in the way of being more like Christ, um, you've, you've got to, you've got to drop them. You are, um, you are paraphrasing Mike Pence. How so? I am a Christian, a conservative and a Republican in that order. (laughs) I mean, as, as it stands a statement on its own, uh, I, I think that's a, that's a fine statement. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no, yeah, no, no, nothing loaded there, right? Like I think Mike, Mike Pence is a, a complicated figure, I think would be fair to say. Yeah. Um, but when I heard that he had said that, I thought, yeah, that sounds right. You know? yeah. and, I'm, and I'm glad that's at least what he's trying to do, um, yeah. as it were. Yeah. And so, uh, and how about, how would you guide Christians who are thinking through these things? What advice would you give? You know, you've cut, co- you've covered, I think most of the waterfront, especially on this question of start with scripture and let, and, and be willing to let scripture teach you new things. Um, I think Ben, you, I mean, you've described it in the sense of like racial justice and having a new set of categories and discussions for that in light of current events, but also in light of a, of a deeper study of scripture and just evolution over time. And, I'm actually, I'm very thankful for many people who are sort of coming around to that, you know, and are saying, this is something that we are, that is demanded of us, that we consider this far more deeply. Um, And I think that we have to be gracious about that when it happens and grateful for it when it happens as our understanding deepens. Um, I think that you need to be open to letting others challenge you. That's one. I mean, I benefited immensely from brothers and sisters who would simply ask me, how can you believe X? Right. Like, and, and, and I mean, you know, sometimes it was a wooden question. It was sort of a, how can you be a Democrat? Like, I can't believe this. Right. Which, but, but nonetheless, it's useful to surround yourself with people who are going to at least make you a little uncomfortable in your, you know, in whatever it is that you've chosen to believe about politics um, because there are multiple leaps you have to get to say, I believe in policy X, right? So for example, to say something like, um, you know, I, yeah, to, to say something like, you know, I believe in, um, you know, like lower taxes, let's just say, right? You have to start with a biblical belief. You have to translate that biblical belief into a political philosophy. And then there's an empirical question of what public policy will actually deliver for you on the thing you're trying for, right? Like, and, and those are different leaps. And the empirical question has less to do with what scripture commands than with like what we believe, right? So for example, you and I might, I mean, you know, actually just a good, another example from earlier, you and I both are not for totalitarianism. We don't think that's a good idea. You and I may have different ideas empirically about the, the biggest risks. Mm-hmm that yeah. would put us on that road as it were yeah. right like yeah. and and there's no easy scriptural re- resolution of that debate right. right does being does being sort of into socialism does that more likely lead you to totalitarianism or does being like a nativist and or a racist lead you lead you more into um you know uh or in, into uh totalitarianism right like um i asked you that question earlier we, we're seeing an example of the latter but the former is also possible i must admit that right we've seen it happen right so i think that i think i think that 
like you have to remember that there's a whole category of questions that aren't actually biblical, except for the biblical imperative to try to look at the evidence and see where the evidence leads you, yeah. right? So at some point, we're going to have an episode about climate change. And one of the challenges about the climate debate is that you're debating both the question of whether you should care <laughs> about the climate, which is a biblical question, and the question of whether public policy can or should do something about it, which is a scientific empirical question. Yep. And I think we often confuse the two, if that makes sense. So I think that that's, the, that's another thing to note is that reasonable Christians can have very similar beliefs philosophically, but then very different beliefs about the public policies that actually enact yep. their philosophical beliefs. So I think that's another thing for us to think about. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's true. I think the other thing that comes to mind too is just how, yeah, drawing, drawing principles from scripture to undergird how you're thinking about things is so helpful because because this I'm going to say something that I think sounds obvious to many people who listen to us, but maybe it's not to everybody, which is abortion and racial justice are both Imago Dei issues. Right. Right. And so we would agree on that. And yet, because of how those issues break down, quote unquote, on left and right, those are often opposed, like they're set against each other. So, so often you'll hear a public debate about like, you know, how can you like, how can you care about black lives mattering if you don't care about, you know, the 3000 black children who are killed by abortion on a weekly basis or vice versa. If you want to flip it, like, how can you say you're pro-life if you're not pro-life womb to tomb? And it's like, sure. You guys are like, how are these things being pitted against each other when they're clearly both corruptions of a doctrine we should hold sacred, which is, you know, that all beings, all human beings are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so we have to allow those principles that, that cross cut our political categories, like, like supersede those arguments. Because I, I, I get very discouraged when I see those kinds of debates because it's it is arguing somewhat viciously for the same doctrine and principle these like these two um belligerents shouldn't be enemies they should be united on on these issues because they're both the same same doctrinal issue that undergirds them so i think that's that's another one is just letting let where where the principles of scripture kind of obliterate our left and right like let it do that Mm-hmm. Yeah. So last question for us both then is how, how should we think about, how should we think about party identity, if at all, good to be identified with the party, bad to identify with the party, <laughs> somewhere in between? Yeah, I'm, I, that, that's a good question. And I haven't thought about it a lot. It's, uh, th- I haven't thought about it a lot. So I reserve my right to change it <laughs> as I so often do. I, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I think parties can be um useful for you know certain political certain policies being advanced at the at the same time um you know when your identity is i'm a republican and those guys over there on the left are monsters that's a problem um it's it's idolatry right um And I think, but that's, that's my Christian argument is as Christians, our identity needs to be founded in Christ and, and the gospel and his atoning work for us on the cross and, you know, his redemption of us through his blood. 
But even from a secular perspective, I mean, George Washington warned of factionalism from the jump, from, from basically the beginning. He said, don't let factions um, divide this country. And so it is a tough thing, like, especially now the right and left are so, well, I mean, it's, they've been this opposed before. I don't want to act like we're, that we haven't seen things like this before, but we are, we are really divided and it is, the rhetoric is often very nasty. Um, and our own founding fathers would, would suggest that that is untenable for good governance over the long haul. Well, I mean, that's what they wrote. It's not what right. they did. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, yeah. yeah like, hey, look, um, not do as, do as I say, not yeah, as I do. Yeah, fair I mean, enough. Every parent I mean, knows this. Uh, yes. I, you know, I think that every, everywhere on the planet, any sort of government that is even somewhat democratic has been organized, parties have formed, right? And there's a reason for that, as you say, which is that parties exist to organize different interests into coalitions that can then together try to get something done. Um, and so you kind of can't, you can't do stuff without political parties, actually. Um, in a lot, in, in a lot of ways. And, um, so I, I do think that like in that sense, like I'm not saying, oh, political parties are bad or even joining a political party isn't necessarily bad. You know, the point we've been making is that you can let the joining become an idolatry and you shouldn't do that, right? You shouldn't let it become more important than your identity in Christ or even your political philosophy if you, if you have one, right? So, you know, Christian, then conservative, then Republican is correct. Um, you know, and I, and I think that um so that's the warning right and i think that we just happen to find ourselves in a moment where party competition is particularly vicious and actually ben i guess the one thing i'd say is you 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 sort of do need those weird coalitions you do need those unusual things that break the boundaries so the person who decides they're both pro-life and pro-racial justice like god bless them right like whatever party they come from because they're defying something about the party they're in by choosing to be that person, right? Like um, you need more people like that, not fewer. Um, even, you know, so, and, and, and you need that so that you can have strange bedfellows across party lines and compromises across party lines. Um, what's challenging about that, and we can do this in another, F, you know, sort of episode is it's um, one of the, you know, if we think that like things were, you know, that's how it used to be, um, that is how it used to be for a brief period in the mid 20th century, mostly because of, you know, Jim Crow slavery and the way that that scrambled the party's identities, right? So you don't want it to be, you don't want the strange coalitions to happen because of that, <laughs> right? But but you do want um, there to be some give there. And right now we're just at a, at a moment when there isn't a lot of give. So actually, that, that would be the last thing I guess I'd say is, in this current moment, it's particularly dangerous to say, I think as a Christian, I identify as a Democrat or identify as a Republican, you are then signing yourself up for a near total worldview that that party wants you to have. That's just the way things are right now, right? Uh, hopefully it won't be the way they are forever, but you, if you choose to sort of join a party, you kind of got to do so with kind of one foot in only, and you got to be careful that it doesn't become more than that, I think. No, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to belabor the point, but the way political realignment seems to be happening at a, at a, at a faster pace now um, means I think 
Christian should always kind of be one foot in, one foot out because the the ground does shift under your feet really quickly. Um, and so you don't want to be a part of something that you, you can't in good conscience be a part of um, or get caught up in momentum that you don't want to be caught up in. Um, right. Well, and here, here's a crazy thing, right? So suppose hypothetically, and this isn't out of the you know, question because right now we're at a moment of particular tension that like there emerges a party that's in that strange part of the spectrum you just described, Ben, kind of, you know, socially conservative and, you know, uh, fiscally liberal. Um, you know, we, I think we jokingly call that the Abraham Kuyper party sometimes because that's what he was, right? Like, and, you know, okay. So suppose such a party emerges and it begins to become a real thing. There is one that exists. Uh, I think it's yes. a, the Catholic Workers Party, I think. Ah, well, okay, right. So suppose the Catholic Workers Party becomes like a thing yeah. that it's actually competitive in one or more places. I'm not sure. I mean, at that, that that is a very different circumstance at which becoming a full-throated member who wants to try to make that movement grow and make that, that very real calling as a believer in the moment yeah. is to sort of push that cause and that issue, right? So there are actually circumstances in which joining and supporting a party may very well be exactly the right thing to do. Yeah. I think we're both wary of it right now because of where our two parties are right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So anyway, with that, all of you listeners have learned more about us than perhaps you cared to learn. And sorry that you missed out on Thabiti's wisdom for this time. Um, but do join us next time. We will be back to our usual uh, sort of schedule with all three of us. So Ben, do you want to go ahead and uh, pray us out? Yeah, absolutely. Heavenly Father, we do give you praise for being um, the God of the entire universe, Lord. You are majestic. You are powerful. You are kind. You are just, you are gentle and lowly. You loved us enough to send Christ to come to us in order to save a people to yourself. And so we are grateful for the things that you have done. Um, and we do pray um, as a, as a people, as a remnant you have formed here in this country, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the good and the just and to act accordingly. Um, give us soft hearts for one another as we all try to grapple with what it means to vote in a divided democracy. Um, let our identities be primarily found in Christ, Lord. We would see that, see our unity in Christ as far greater uh, than any division we have politically. Um, protect your church from backbiting and division that comes from political differences, Lord. Um, and give us, give us uh, generosity of spirit um, towards one another. And ultimately, um, you know who's going to win in 2020, and you know who's going to be president and the senators and on the Supreme Court. None of this surprises you, Lord. It's all under your sovereignty. And so help us to trust you in that. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.